Turn with me, if you will, again to uh, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. We'll look at the whole chapter today, chapter 5. At one time or another, most everyone has resolved that they need to read the Bible. So I'm going to open it up and I'm going to read it through, cover to cover. And so they start, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This sounds familiar. And they read. And every day they continue another chapter, a few more verses, resolve to read it all the way to the end. And about Genesis chapter 5 comes the dreaded genealogies. And suddenly reading the Bible from cover to cover doesn't sound near as interesting as I thought it was going to be. Well, that Waterloo of so many resolutions is our text for this morning. In case you never made it all the way through it, let me read it. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had, son, uh, had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enos, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enos had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enos, li Enos lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enos lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And after he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch, and after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah, and after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. 
When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we'll stop there. Two truths that I think we ought to learn from this chapter, though they don't um, completely exhaust the chapter, for we're not really going to talk about the last few verses about the birth of Noah, since we talk about him so much uh, next time. Two truths, though. The first is this. Everyone lives under the curse of death. Everyone lives under the curse of death. You may recall when we started the study of uh, Genesis that we talked about the structure a little bit, and we said that after the initial creation account, the remainder of the book, the, the whole of the book, is divided into ten, into ten sections. It's divided by a simple little heading, the Hebrew word toledot. Now, in the New International Version, that little word is translated, the account of. But you may recall that the force of that word actually it says something like, this is what became of so-and-so. Or as we would say it in a rhetorical question, whatever happened to so-and-so? Well, when chapter 5 begins, it starts with this, another Toledot section, starts another Toledot section. The issue here is, whatever happened to Adam's line? Or as one writer put it, this is the book of what became of the family tree of Adam, in verse 1. Now that's a significant question. For, for we're several generations down the road of history now. Though Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and God had pronounced the consequences of their sin, the truth is that life has continued pretty well for them, just like it has for us to this day. Many of Seth's descendants are still worshiping the Lord. And though Cain's descendants no longer seem to care about such things, their civilization continues to grow more and more cultured and more and more productive. Things go on. So whatever happened, whatever happened to those things said to Adam, whatever happened to the curse, whatever happened to what looked like was going to happen with Adam and Eve? Well, there's no missing the point as we read this account. Whatever happened, they all died. Eight times we read the words, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The chapter begins with a rehearsal of the creation of man, and especially the fact that God blessed them. But now, in contrast, everyone lives under the curse of death. In fact, a comparison of verses 1 and 3 gives us a very important piece of information here. 
Verse 1 reminds us that man was created in the image or likeness of God. Then verse 3 tells us that the children who were born to Adam were born in his likeness or image. In other words, what Adam was, he reproduced in his children. Adam was made in the image of God. He reproduced that in his children so that we are still made in the image of God. But in this chapter, we see that it also applies to Adam of this very thing. There in Romans 5, verses 12 and 14, we read these words. Therefore, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who was the pattern of the one to come. You get the point of what Paul's saying in those verses? He says all these people who lived after Adam, they had no law to break. God hadn't given the law yet. They had no commands from God. He hadn't given them any commands. And yet they were all sinners, every one of them. How do we know that? Because they all died. And death is the result of sin. So how did they get to be sinners if they never even violated one command of God? Adam passed his guilt on to the human race. Therefore, everyone now lives under the curse of death. Now, I know that as we read this section, the thing that everybody wants to know when we come here is, wait a minute, how can everybody live so long? 800, 900 years, you've got to be kidding. This can't be right. And so I looked to see what I could find, what kind of explanation I could find of this. And I found several. One author compares this account to ancient Sumerian lists of kings who lived before the flood. Perhaps Genesis is like those Sumerian king lists. Well, that sounds pretty good. What happened in those Sumerian king lists, apparently, so I'm sure this is a bit of an oversimplification, but as best I understand it, what happened was that you expressed a king's greatness by multiplying the years of his life by some factor. So that if he lives to be 90 years old, but he's really a great man, we'll say he lived 900 years. Well, that's, maybe that's what's going on here. Well, not quite. As much as that sounds right, when we actually look at those Sumerian king lists, those people were reported to live 20 and 30,000 years. It's not exactly the same as what we have here. In fact, when we look for a factor that we could divide these all, all these numbers by and come up with some realistic numbers, we don't find any such factors without coming up with other absurdities. 
which is the same problem we have with another uh, line of thought. Somebody else has thought that the ages were actually measured in months, not years. They were just called years. The problem with that is that there's nowhere in the whole Bible where the word year means something other than solar years. Even if it's taken figuratively, it's still is reference to solar years. And if we apply this scheme to solve the problems of excessively long lives, it's really months, not years, that we end up with people having sons when they're only two and three years old. <laughs> Presents us a different problem. So there's another view that says, well, these aren't really talking about individual men. These are talking about the clan or the tribe of Seth that the tribe of Seth lived, whatever it is, 800 years or something. Ah, now there's an answer. The family head is named, but in fact it's talking about his whole people, a whole civilization that went on for several centuries. That sounds pretty good. Except when we get to Enoch, it clearly is not true. And we get to Noah, it clearly is not true. Though they had similar lifespans. I think Dr. Walter Kaiser's assessment in his book entitled Hard Sayings of the Bible, I think his assessment is rather to the point. He writes this, attempts to make the numbers more palatable have been crushed by the internal weight of their own argumentation or from a failure to care for all the data of a single theory. I'm certainly open to any new information that would give us a better explanation. But in the absence of that, I think we have to take the text to mean what it says. And as we do so, I would offer some, some, some observations or comments. Moses, who wrote these words, he knew that the normal lifespan was not seven or eight, nine hundred years. You may not recall, but Moses is the one who wrote Psalm 90 that says God gives us 70 years or 80 if we have the strength and then we die with a groan. Those are Moses' words. And yet he writes these as if this is just as accurate. Could it be that the reason these long lifetimes are recorded by Moses is just because they are so unusual. Another observation is that, you know, the flood, we'll talk about the flood. The flood was a major cataclysmic event, which is unlike anything we have ever seen. Who knows what changes that brought to our environment that might account for a sudden decline in human longevity, which we find after the flood. One more comment about that. Just within the last couple of weeks, I was watching some news story on television, and it told us about how science has discovered the aging genes, the 60 genes that have to do with aging. And they suggested that with this information, the day may come that people could live hundreds of years. And they said that with a straight face. 
Now, why is it that that seems to have some credibility when the newsman says it, and when the Bible says it, we think that couldn't be true? Oh, but the big point I want to make about that, because I can't solve those questions, but while we're busy struggling with this thing, how could people live so long? How could they live eight and nine hundred years? The point that the author is making is quite different. For Moses never says, look at the long lives that God gave these people. He never says that. What he says is, and they died, and they died, and they died. His point's exactly the opposite. The point of the passage is clearly that everyone lives under the curse of death. Before we get away from this first point, they not only lived under the curse of death, judgment loomed on the horizon. This was a time of terrible sinfulness, a time when most of the population of the earth was increasingly practicing wickedness. We can learn that by looking ahead to the next chapter where the judgment of the flood is recorded. But we can also learn that in another way. We learn it from Enoch. Now we're going to talk about Enoch in a moment. But in Jude 14 and 15, we are told more about Enoch than we're told here in Genesis 5. Let me read a little bit from Jude 14 and 15. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, quote, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So said Enoch. This was a time of ungodliness. Enoch uses the word four times in one sentence, ungodliness. And God was about to judge it. Dr. James Boyce makes a really interesting point about this judgment in a sermon that he preached on Methuselah, the oldest man. Let me just pass on to you what he says. The name Methuselah could have several meanings, but none of them seem to make much sense, with the exception of one. That one meaning is something like this. When he is dead, it shall come. Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall come. The word can mean. Dr. Boyce suggests that apparently the Lord told Enoch something about the judgment that was coming. And Enoch, in response, named his son as a warning to the ungodly world concerning the certainty of this judgment and when it's coming. When he is dead, it shall come. 
His name is Methuselah. That's what it means. Now, we might just dismiss all that as some fanciful thinking, except that when you add up the years, you come up with an interesting point here. When you add up who's still living when who else is born with all these long lifespans, counting from the years from just the beginning of this account, just counting forward, Methuselah was born in the 687th year mentioned here. His son Lamech was born in the 874th year mentioned here. And then Noah was born in the 1056th year. Now actually Lamech died before his father Methuselah. He died in the year 1651. Methuselah, who lived 969 years, died in the year 1656, as we're counting years here. But here's the interesting point. Genesis chapter 10, verse 28, the last verse of Genesis 10, after all the account of the flood and all, tells us that Noah lived a total of 950 years, 350 of which were after the flood. That means Noah lived 600 years before the flood. Noah was born in the year 1056. He lived 600 years. And then the flood began in 1656, the year Methuselah died. His name means, when he is dead, shall come. Folks, that ought to teach us something. If Dr. Boyce is right in this, God chose to tie his warning of judgment to the man who lived longer than anybody on the face of the earth before or since, to our knowledge. Can you imagine what that tells us about the long-suffering and patience of God? And here we stand in the same place. Everyone lives under the curse of death. And in fact, God has again promised judgment. And yet he patiently waits. And some scoffers say, he's not coming, nothing's going to happen. And we read, a day in the eyes of the, a day in the, eyes of the Lord is like a thousand years. Or might we say a day in the eyes of the Lord is like 969 years. Peter tells us he is not willing that all should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We live under the curse of death and judgment hangs over our heads. And so what do we do with that? What do you do with that? The world around us says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. You go around only once, get all you can get. God says through the prophet Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the evil man his thoughts. 
Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Which brings us to the second point of this chapter, which is this. Life comes through walking with God. Everyone lives under the curse of death, but life comes through walking with God. You know, the more everything is the same, the more something different stands out. Dodge has recently picked up on this. They're running a whole series of commercials and ads and magazines. I'm sure you've seen it. All automakers are just the same. Ho-hum, another one just alike, but we are different. They got that from Sesame Street. I remember the tune when my kids were growing up. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. <laughs> you see, you, in fact, can accentuate the difference of the one thing by making all the others just alike. And the one stands out. That's what happens in Genesis 5. Throughout this whole genealogy of this chapter, there is a very predictable pattern. In every entry in this genealogy, there are three components. Component number one says person A lived X number of years and then became the father of person B. Component two says person A lived Y number of years after he fathered B, and fathered other sons and daughters. And component number three says, person A's entire life lasted X plus Y years, and then he died. So example, to look at the entry of Seth. Seth lived 105 years. Seth had lived 105 years when he became the father of Enosh. That's component one. After he became the father of Enos, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. That's component two. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years. That's 105 plus 807. And then he died. That's component three. And they're all just alike. Again and again, the same pattern, Seth. Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalea, Jared, on it goes. And then listen to the verses 21 to 24, right in the middle of all of this. When Enoch had lived 665 years, he became the father of Methuselah, component one. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. That's different. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. That's different. Pastor Timothy Cole, in a wonderful article that I found, says this. The reversal is stark and bursting with theological truth. 
obviously, the author crafted this genealogy in this way to make it a theological commentary. Truth about life and death under the curse is being taught by means of this recurring literary pattern and the subsequent break from it in the case of Enoch. And in short, the truth that's being taught here is this. Life comes through walking with God. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Enoch walked with God. What was the significance of that? Why are we told that about Enoch? What does it mean? What does God want us to learn? Well, let me suggest some things. First of all, Enoch is a reminder of life before sin. This statement of Enoch is a reminder of life before sin. This term, walking with God, comes from the Garden of Eden. The Lord walked there in the pool of the day, seeking for Adam and Eve, remember? In fact, the Hebrew scholars tell me that this particular Hebrew construction is used in the, when it's used in the Pentateuch, always has God as one of the participants, always. And so by the account of Enoch's walk with God, we're reminded of what has been lost to sin intimacy with our Creator. Here we're reminded that nothing is normal anymore. Everything is abnormal. Everything is corrupted by sin. It didn't used to be this way. Man used to walk with God. Secondly, Enoch's walk with God holds forth hope. For restoration. Not just a reminder of what it used to be, but hope for restoration. Remember, God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Well, Enoch's experience keeps that hope alive. Keeps us looking forward to the day when that will be a reality. Pastor Cole again says, here then is a glimpse of grace. In the midst of the spread of sin, here the funeral bell stops tolling. One man walked with God and God took him. He escaped the clutches of death. Clearly the pathway to life, the road one is to travel to escape the sting of death, is the way of the pilgrim in which a person walks with God. In the writing of Enoch's life, Moses' aim was to communicate hope. Death is not the final answer. For Enoch, God overruled death. The black cloud of death that hovers over the human race, a cloud that God himself promised and put there. A dark cloud that is the essence of the curse. That is split wide open with the brilliance of Enoch's life. There is rescue from death. 
there is rescue there is rescue from the effects of the curse there is hope there is a road back to the garden there is access to the tree of life god can indeed cause one to live forever it is possible after all to once again fellowship with and worship the lord god in the garden how by walking with God. Thus the lesson of Enoch is this. Life comes through walking with God. This is a reminder of how it used to be. This holds forth hope of what it will be again someday. And this also gives us God's instruction on how he wants us to live. We're not told much about what it meant for Enoch to walk with God. Certainly it had to do with some recognition of his creatureliness and his honor of the creator. It could not have been legalistic law-keeping, for there was no law but it certainly was intimacy of fellowship with God. We know that his walk was in contrast to the ungodliness that was all around him. It made him different. We also know that he did this for a long time. We would say this was his lifestyle. But beyond that, Genesis doesn't tell us too much about Enoch's walk with God. It leaves that to be unpacked by the rest of the scripture. But God's word does not disappoint us, for the New Testament gives us a virtual commentary on the Enoch account when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, the great uh, hall of fame of the faithful. Let me read from Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, Hebrews tells us that Enoch's walk with God was a matter of faith. Believing that God exists and trusting him enough to call upon him and seek his faith. That sounds like the same thing as the gospel. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth, call upon him, you'll be saved. You see, Enoch's walk with God was not essentially different than ours. Now we just know more about what God has done to save us. How he sent his son to pay for our sins. How he raised Jesus from the dead. How he has now given us his spirit to empower us to live in holiness. And how Jesus is coming again to take us to glory with Enoch. But like Enoch, today we walk in faith informed faith that focuses on the Lord Jesus and how he has revealed the Father to us and how he has brought salvation to us. 
Life comes through walking with God. I remember vividly when I was in college, um, a professor in our school who was the best preacher there, preaching about walking with God. Not from this text, but from one of the texts in the New Testament that calls us to walk in the Spirit or walk in love or walk in faithfulness. And pacing back and forth, he gave us walking lessons, and it stuck in my mind. I was probably 19 years old at the time. What do you do when you walk, he said. Well, the first thing you do when you walk is, you're standing here, the first thing you have to do is to, is to push yourself off balance so that you'll fall. You push yourself out, right? You push yourself out depending upon the fact that your foot's going to catch you, that it's going to work, that the floor is going to hold. Walking is, first of all, depending. Pushing yourself out of what's comfortable, out of just standing there, dead in the water, and daring to depend, to believe, to trust in something. And walking with God is like that. It's not just sitting still being comfortable. It's daring to push ourselves out to do what God says, knowing that we will fall flat on our face if he doesn't keep his promises, but we depend on him to do so. Then walking is also continuing. That's not walking. Walking continues, continues, keeps going. 300 years for Enoch, continues. One step is not walking. Sprinting is not walking. Sitting is not walking. Walking is continuing, continuing, continuing. And then walking is also, thirdly, one step at a time. Step Step, step, step. It's so simple. What's one step? Step, step. One step is nothing. Step, step. It's so easy. Step, step. But it's how you walk. You can't take more than one step at a time. Ever think of that? Take three steps all at once. You can't do that. So it's walking with the Lord. One little occasion to trust the Lord. Step. One little burden laid before the Lord. Step. One little act of obedience when I don't feel like it, but God says it, and I'll dare to do what he said. Step. One little putting away of the things that I want in favor of what God wants. Step. One little act of obedience. One little act of praise. One little act of faith. Step. 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 Little baby steps for 300 years. <laughs> you walk a long ways. Depending, continuing, one step at a time. Stepping out in faith beyond what's comfortable and normal. Depending on the Lord, one act of obedience. One act of faith at a time, and then another, and another, and another. 
for the rest of your life. So Enoch walked with God, and eternal life comes through walking with God. Folks, there are a lot of dreamers around. People who wish they walked with God, wish that they had lives of exemplary holiness, who wish they knew the peace and joy of intimacy with God. But wishing is useless. You have to take steps. Hebrews says we must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, that he keeps his promises enough to actually step out and come to him and call upon him. That's where we start, step one. Come to the Lord Jesus, empty-handed, call upon him to save us. That's where we start. But that's not the end. That's only the first step. There are many more steps. For the way we come to him is also the way we live every day. Trusting, continuing, one battle at a time, one step at a time, learning one thing at a time. Being obedient, one act at a time. Committing things to him, one prayer at a time. Stepping, stepping, stepping. And life comes through walking with God. God gave Genesis 5 to Moses and to the people of Israel who were learning what it meant to know and serve the Lord having come out of Egypt, about to enter the Promised Land. You know, these things that were recorded for them were ancient history for them, too. They had never seen this. They didn't know anybody who lived eight or nine hundred years. It was all ancient history to them as it is to us. But in another sense, these truths were as real and modern to them in their world as they are to us in our world. For it was true, and it is still true, that everyone lives under the curse of death with judgment hanging over our heads. But life is found in walking with God by faith in him, according to his word. Amen. Father, teach us to walk. We don't expect to be translated to heaven without dying as Enoch was. But Lord, you've commanded every one of us to believe, to confess, to call upon you. And as we receive you in faith and dependence, so to walk for the rest of our lives. Oh, Lord, we've become so often so comfortable sitting dead in the water, never trusting you for anything, never allowing ourselves to be put in a place where we had to trust you for something we couldn't produce ourselves, being willing to be disobedient, to fail to do what you tell us to do, rather than to be in a place where we had to really trust you. Oh, Lord, forgive our faithlessness. Teach us to walk in faith, with an urgency, Lord, 
For the alternative is the curse of death and judgment. Deliver us, we pray. In Jesus' name.